Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us here in Washington. Thank you to those of you who are joining us from around the world through our various online platforms, and to those of you who are going to be watching this video in the days and weeks to come. I'm Rajul Pandya Loach. I'm Director for Communications and Public Affairs at IFPRI, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the Washington, D.C. book launch of the book, The Making of a Blue Revolution in Bangladesh, Enablers, Impacts, and the Path Ahead for Aquaculture edited by my colleagues Shahidur Rashid and Shiabo Zhang. We have a wonderful program lined up for you, and without further ado, I'd like to give the space to our speakers for them to introduce and share with you the highlights of this book. Our first speaker is one of the editors of the book, and he is Shahidur Rashid. He is IFPRI's director for South Asia, and I'd like to welcome him to the podium to start presenting the book to all of us. Thank you very much, Shahid. Thank you, Rajul. Good morning to everyone in the room, and greetings to everyone joining online, wherever you are. Um, so my job is very simple. What I'll do, I'll make some introductory remarks. I'll come back to, with some con concluding thoughts. My colleagues, Jabu Zhang, Paul DeRoche, and Nick Miner will be doing the heavy lifting. They'll be presenting all the technical contents. They'll be answering all the questions, too. Um, so without further ado, so first point I'd like to make, I'd like to acknowledge all the fantastic group of authors who contributed to this book. They are very young authors who were a student at that time and subsequently went to Wharton Business School. That would be Chin Chen King King Chen, uh, third, fourth from the top row on the right. And there are authors who were graduate students at that time, now a faculty member. It was really a pleasure working with that team. I really enjoyed it and learned quite a few things. Okay, this is a book about aquaculture. Why aquaculture? What is the relevance in the global context? What is the relevance in the Bangladesh context? Global context, this is, there are quite a few numbers I can throw in to make the case. Globally, global population, so fisheries and aquaculture feature very prominently in the sustainable development goals. If you look at the sustainable development goals, number 14 is directly related to fisheries, lives under the water. And then globally, fish accounts for about 20% of the animals source protein consumption in the world. And this is the fastest growing subsector, food sector in the world, which is expected to account for 60% of the human consumption by 2030. Now for Bangladesh context, in Bengali there is a saying, say, bhate Bengali, meaning fish and rice is what makes a Bengali. Is that important? And Bengalis derive about 60% of the animal source protein from fish. It is that important. And Bangladesh context also SDGs are very related and important for this uh, aquaculture sector. Okay. So those are, I don't have to go through all these pictures. I just wanted to make one couple of points there. 14 and number one, as Nick Minot will be talking about, Poverty impact of aquaculture has been quite significant in Bangladesh. It was accounting for about 10% of the total poverty reduction between 2000 and 2010. So the sector has potential to contribute in sustainable development goal one, two, and other related goals. So this is a picture from FAO. If you look at that, we have the fish consumption data 
captured fisheries, and dotted line is the aquaculture. As you can see, it's just rising up. Now think about the world if aquaculture did not exist. Prices would have gone skyrocketed. That did not happen thanks to aquaculture. That's why you're calling it blue revolution. Now in the Bangladesh context, total fish production in aquaculture back in the 80s was about 100,000 tons. In 2015, it reached close to 2 million tons. In the early 90s, fish consumption per capita in Bangladesh was roughly 7 kilograms. In 2016, it reached to 23 kilograms. Given they derived large source of protein from fish, these are remarkable success in addition to the poverty impact. Now I'd like to put this in a broader context, why this is important. Let's recall the structural adjustment time of the 80s. The whole premise was that if you take care of the distortion from the market, you liberalize market, that creates the potential, economy will grow, poverty will decline, food security will improve. That actually indeed happened in Asia. Most Asian countries enjoyed growth in those 80s because of the Green Revolution. But around the same time, a very strong strand of research came out, establishing the fact that food security does not translate into nutrition security. So rice price was declining. To be specific, rice price was declining by about 40% in real terms. But at the same time, fish prices are going up, almost double. The research that our colleagues, Howdy Bui did at IPRI, shows that until early, late 90s, real price of fish went up by almost double, 100%. Okay. So here is the change. Here is why you're calling it a revolution. If you look at the aquaculture, there are three main fisheries subsector in Bangladesh, capture inland fisheries, aquaculture, and culture fisheries. Aquaculture has, was the smallest subsector until about 90s. Now this is the largest. As you can see, the share has gone up up to almost 50% of the fish production is accounted for by the aquaculture alone. Now coming back to the old studies from the IPRI, yes, indeed, fish prices were going up quite significantly until about the early 2000. But guess what happened afterwards? There was a nosedive practically. Only variety of fish that its prices are going up is the hillshire fisheries, which is the marine fisheries. Aquaculture is declining quite significantly around the t all the time. Now, what we do then, as the in this book, we ask three questions. One is, how did the price trend turn around? There was a reversal in the price trend. What implication does this trend reversal have for food security, poverty, and overall well-being? And the third question what we ask is, what possible pol policy options are there to accelerate, maintain the momentum? but that is the path ahead. And in addressing this question, IPRI has conducted a comprehensive value chain survey of its kind, one of its kind, carried out a set of econometric analysis on various dimensions. We implemented micro-simulation using nationally representative surveys, and then conducted projection analysis under various scenarios, which is what Dr. Paul Roche has done. Okay, I'll now end here at the introductory. I'll come back later to make the concluding comments. Thank you. Shahid, thank you very much for setting the context and giving us a flavor. Our second speaker is the second editor of the book, Shabo Zhang. He is Senior Research Fellow in the 
Development Strategy and Governance Division of IFPRI, as well as Chair, Professor of Economics at Peking University in China. Xiaobo, welcome and look forward to your remarks. So I'm going to talk about the, the transformations of the agriculture sector. In order to understand the patterns of transformation, a IPRI team conduct a comprehensive fish value chain survey. Uh, we surveyed uh, 20 districts, you can see from the map. Uh, it covers 102 Abzillas. At each, uh, in each Abzilla, we surveyed 25 farmers. Uh, in addition, we also surveyed uh, feed mills, feed dealers, feed traders, hatcheries uh, in different segments of the value chain. Uh, at the community level, we also did a uh, metal level uh, survey. We uh, tried to gather more metal level information. So based on the survey, we have uh, summarized there are four transformations. The first one we called extensive growth margin, extensive growth. So you look at the fish pond area, it has increased from uh, by 30% between 2004 and 2014. The number of fish farmers grew by 63%. The second aspect of transformation is intensification or intensive growth margin. Farmers invest more in equipment. For example, the capital to labor ratio in fish farmers, in fish farms increased by 47% from 2008 to 2014. In addition, fish farmers purchase more hatchery produced seed and the floating feed. Because of the more intensive input, fish production increased by 117% uh, between 2004 and uh, 2014, much faster than the expansion of pond area, that is 30%. So that means pond productivity has increased tremendously during the time period. Another aspect of transformation is commercialization. So whenever there's an air expansion of the fish production, we will find the increasing number of wholesale markets, feed dealers, fish traders. So farmers can sell their per, uh, fish nearby. So this photo, the photo below we took in the early uh, morning, the morning wholesale market. You can see farmers just went to the nearby market to sell the fish and then trucks us, uh, transport the fish to the major cities within a few hours. So this uh, shows the scenes of the transportations. Um, also there are uh, feed dealers, traders, some service providers uh, are all nearby in the market. So farmers can get all their services in the cluster. So this one we call the formation of fish clusters. Clusters has some advantages. The first, it's easy for people to imitate imitate others, like for new technologies, so it facilitates learning. That's why in clusters, farmers are more like, like to adopt modern inputs. Uh, secondly, in clusters, people also compete a lot. Uh, not only compete, but also collaborate a lot. Uh, for example, in this table, the dependent variable is the uh, uh, adoption of modern inputs uh, or the adoption of the modern inputs. You can see the degree of cluster in 2008 is probably correlated with the degree of uh, uh, adoption of modern inputs. Uh, similarly, we can show that the clustering is also correlated with collaborations. 
the last aspect of transformation is spatial concentration. We found the feed mills have become increasingly concentrated. Uh, if you look at the figure in the bottom, uh, the bar chart, you can see the number of feed mills uh, in four regions uh, between 2004 and 2014. You can see 62% of country's feed mills were located in the north. So there's increased concentration for feed. The reasons the feed production has a scale economy, and also Bangladesh has very good infrastructure. The feed can be transported to the fish pond quite uh, easily. Now we talk about drivers. We mainly think about two drivers. The first one is better infrastructure. Infrastructure includes like a road, uh, electricity access, and uh, cell phone, uh, uh, telecommunication. In the 80s, the Bangladesh government adopted a rural road program. The expansion of rural road played a great role in the Blue Revolution. Because fish is very good, the fish must be transported uh, to the retail market uh, within a few hours. So better road is crucial. Secondly, uh, electricity has become more widely uh, accessible. It increased from 20 to 50 percent uh, between, uh, between 2000 and 2018. With electricity, households can afford to buy a fridge. They can store fish. So they, they can help increase the demand for fish. Uh, also, there's a cell phone ownership sold from 0.2% uh, to about 75%. So with better communication, uh, the fish price become more, tra more transparent. The fish market become more integrated. The next driver is rising income. Uh, so these three figures on the right uh, are based on a paper published in World Development in 2014. It shows the urban wages and the rural wages. The upper line is urban wage. The bottom line, uh, south line, is rural wage. The wages are deflated by three different price uh, deflators, uh, indicators. Uh, one, the first one is general price index. The second one is food price index. The last one is rice price. You can see no matter which price index is used for the deflation, in general, we found since 2007 or 2008, real wages have increased very dramatically. With rising wages, people are getting richer, in particular the workers. So they want to eat more fish. So this is one of the most important drivers. Thank you. Shabu, thank you so much for sharing this fascinating transformations and drivers. Our third speaker is Nick Maino. Nick is the Deputy Director of the Markets, Trade and Institutions Division here at DIFPRI, and he'll also present work from the book. Nick. Uh, thank you, Rizal, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is the, the welfare impact, basically uh, who gains and who loses from uh, the rapid growth in aquaculture in Bangladesh um, in recent decades. So we know that, uh, I think the slide was shown earlier, that prices declined significantly. Um, they uh, declined by 45% between 2000 and 2010. Uh, we know that fish consumption got, went up um, pretty dramatically and continues to rise, partly as a result of the income growth uh, that Xiaobo just talked about, but also because of the reduction in price. Um, and we know that fish consumption has increased for all groups, for, for different income groups, for male and female-headed households in different regions of the country. Um, 
And we know that there's been a, an important employment effect, uh, something like 17.8%, uh, uh, sorry, 17.8 million Bangladeshis work uh, in the aquaculture sector. And uh, just for comparison, the, the garment sector, which is probably better known, particularly as an export sector, uh, only employs about four million. So we've got a, you know, this is very important in terms of employment. But the question is, you know, given this employment and uh, uh, lower prices and the higher uh, consumption, what does that actually mean in terms of income, purchasing power, and in terms of um, poverty? So uh, we have a, uh, we took a sort of partial equilibrium analysis uh, approach here, uh, which means we're just looking at aquaculture. We're not considering the effects on other sectors. We're not taking into account changes in wages and, and, and so on. Um, but we're using a micro-simulation approach, which means we're not just measuring the impact on the economy as a whole, but actually looking at what the, or estimating what the impact is on each household in a household survey, thousands of households, to get an idea of how these benefits are distributed. Uh, so this graph uh, just shows that the benefits in terms of improved productivity, the green area, I've got a, here, um, and uh, the price change here, this bar, uh, represents, uh, because the prices went down, that represents a gain to consumers um, because of lower prices, but it also implies a loss to uh, sellers because they're getting a lower price for their, um, for their product. So uh, this equation, which I won't explain, sort of combines all of those effects together, both the productivity increase, the lower price hurting uh, producers, but the lower price uh, helping consumers, uh, and takes into account consumer and producer responses to those price changes. Um, and uh, we use the 2000 Bangladesh Household Income and Expenditure Survey, uh, which involved about 7,440, uh, not about, exactly, 7,440 households. Um, we estimated the shift in the supply curve to be 76% based on per capita production increase, and we use supply and demand elasticities that were uh, estimated in, in earlier studies. So when we put all these things together, we can estimate the change in income uh, for each household in the sample, as well as um, whether or not they fall below the poverty line or rise above it as a result of that change in income. So the first column uh, is just the proportion of the population, proportion of households in each category. Uh, the second column is the net benefit ratio. That's the uh, net sales as a proportion of income. It's sort of a handy little indicator about how they will be affected by price changes. If it's positive, they gain from a price change. If it's negative, they lose. Uh, sorry. Uh, if, okay. If it's negative, they gain from a price reduction, uh, and if it's positive, they lose from a price reduction. Um, and then the, the third column uh, of figures is the change in income that we estimate. Uh, and as you can see, the average uh, change in income is 2.1%, um, and um, uh, then we can convert that into the change in the poverty rate. And uh, as you can see from the last column, uh, the poverty rate declines by 1.7%, uh, sorry, 1.7 percentage points 
so that's roughly from uh, 48 to uh, 46.3 um, as a result of aquaculture. So we're only looking at the effect of aquaculture. We're not taking into account income growth in the rest of the economy or, or other effects. Um, and uh, if you look at the, the various rows, you can see that the gains in income and the reduction in poverty is pretty consistent across regions, across uh, uh, income categories. Um, it's, uh, if you look at these here, you'll see that actually the poor are gaining somewhat less than richer households from the growth in aquaculture. But um, there, there are significant gains even in the bottom uh, uh, quintiles, the bottom 20 and, and uh, uh, 40% of, uh, of households. Um, OK, so 1.7% uh, um, doesn't really seem like too much. But I think it's important to remember that over this period, from 2000 to 2010, overall poverty reduction was about 17%. So we can say that the growth of aquaculture by itself accounted for roughly 10% of the poverty reduction, the fairly impressive and dramatic poverty reduction that occurred um, over those uh, 10 years. Um, and uh, if we put that in absolute numbers, that means that um, roughly 2 million people uh, were lifted out of poverty as a result of the growth in uh, aquaculture just during this 10-year uh, period. Okay, thank you. Nick, thank you very much. That was fascinating, and I have the impression we'll be poring over that table with the various columns and coming back to that. Our fourth speaker is Paul DeRoche. Paul is the Director for the Development Strategy and Governance Division at IFPRI. Paul, we look forward to your equally fascinating results. Well, Rajul, you really... Uh, You uh, have really put the pressure on me with that, with that kind of comment. What I want to talk about now is a, a peek into the future, some projections on where the overall fish sector is heading and, and aquaculture's role in that. And to do this, we, we uh, are simulating increases in production, increases in demand, uh, and looking at implicitly, uh, well, explicitly what happens to prices in sort of a partial equilibrium supply-demand framework. So we look at four broad fish systems in Bangladesh. You've got the aquaculture, uh, inland captures, mixed systems, marine. You notice that last column, the marine fisheries off coast, we're not expecting uh, any kind of gain in productivity uh, over the uh, near future. And in fact, in the other systems as well. Uh, the, the big story is in aquaculture, where it looks like uh, we could have substantial gains in productivity, and Jabo has been describing that in the uh, first uh, presentation that he gave, and, and so you get uh, that becomes a big driver of what's going, we think, uh, happen in the future. On the other side, we've got the supply side, these productivity gains, aquaculture, uh, we also have, on the demand side, we've got population growth, uh, urbanization over time, and, and then uh, the per capita income growth. And that differs by household uh, group and so forth. If you look at the last column, the 
and you can see that you know you've got a population of 149 million per capita income growth in our basic scenario for the total is 3.1 percent per year sizable growth uh, in the country uh, one percent population growth overall income growth around four percent and uh, you, you notice that it varies across various household groups uh, the urban population we see growing fast based on uh, other population projections and so the rural population is only growing 0.4 percent per year as urbanization uh, continues uh, in Bangladesh so we had estimated demand pa uh, parameters from the household survey data and and then we use those along with these income growths uh, and population growth that gives us our demand uh, side uh, of this little model and so I'm going to just present the results very quickly so one result remember you saw all that productivity growth we have in ag aquaculture and so those blue bars at the bottom uh, are aquaculture production and you can see over time they grow they grow uh, quite rapidly and uh, these other parts of the systems are not growing much at all and so uh, over time though you can see especially when we have uh, some kind the highest productivity growth you can see a substantial uh, growth in total uh, production and you see by 2030 we're almost uh, at 7 million tons on the other side we have the per capita uh, fish consumption again that's being driven by the income growth the population growth and uh, since we are endogenizing prices the changes in the prices of the different uh, types of fish and you can see that this blue bar is is at the bottom the aquaculture is a substantial part of total consumption uh, as we uh, go forward and here's the uh, percentage change uh, in in consumption and again uh, in these in the simulation three we're just looking at what's the effect of increased household demand if there's only an increase in demand you're, you're getting uh, gains of production about uh, sorry of consumption about 60 percent uh, if you can also uh, uh, increase supply then the prices don't go up as fast and you can increase consumption even faster with uh, positive impacts on nutritional outcomes and, and welfare and in the end you could, one way of seeing this interplay between uh, supply and demand uh, remember that we're anticipating that productivity in aquaculture can increase a lot and we've got demand growing because of incomes and urbanization and so over time we've got supply increasing fast in aquaculture demand increasing fast in aquaculture we've got rather slow rather small changes in prices and in fact in most of the simulations uh, real prices of fish actually go down uh, of, of aquaculture fish but for the average price of fish because in those other systems we don't have productivity gains those prices are are rising over time and so we've got a picture of a of a very dynamic aquaculture and we expect that to continue and a rather stagnant other parts of the sector and Shahid's going to put it all together <laughs>
so I have to put it all together. There one point I'd like to make at the end is two most important resources that Bangladesh has is people and water. And effective utilization of these two resources is central to the development and growth of the country. So the garments industry success stories, remittance success stories that we hear, that is the story of the human side. Aquaculture story that I have, we have heard today, that is the effective utilization of water resources. Let me share a little story why the, how we started this project. I was on home leave in Bangladesh. Jabu was there, and our colleague, Kai Kawus Ahmed, who is now a secretary to the prime minister in Bangladesh, was there. We went out to visit a place, a place that I visited many years ago doing survey work for Dr. Akhtar Ahmed, understanding the rural rationing system. That people, people in that part used to grow one crop and some veggies in the winter, and maximum productivity was a ton per acre. The same place totally transformed. Rice field converted to fish pond, and all the huts transformed into buildings, small buildings, the chin shed. That was a real transformation. That was an eye-opener for me. And that's the point we decided we need to look into it, how this has happened in the country and what lesson can we draw from it. So that's how we started it. And now I don't think I have to go through all of this because Nick and Paul and Jabu have made very clear the impact, path ahead, and what are the drivers of it, right? So if you can want to come to con make the concluding remarks, I have a few bullets here. Paul has already talked about it. So one point I'd like to make, the first point, is that despite these success stories, country lags behind in terms of productivity. The numbers I have there is a comparison with Vietnam. In Bangladesh, in 2009-10, productivity per hectare was 60 to 70 tons. That compares with about 300 tons in Vietnam. So there is productivity gains to be made, and country will have to work on that. On the investment, uh, second and third point, Paul has already made it. Now, these are the most important point I think we have come across in this, is the missing institution. The aquaculture sector in Bangladesh actually went ahead of the regulation and institution and policies could catch up. They grow faster than the institution and policies. So for example, the input supply policies regulation was drafted only in 2011. By that time, aquaculture has already picked up. And we know globally that is becoming a very important issue. Antimicrobial resistance, for example, is a global issue. It's an important part of the supply chain. Regulation did not pay attention to, that, attention to that. And that is a real challenge that country would have to face in the coming years. Another point I'd like to make. We have only looked at here pond culture at land. We have not looked into marine aquaculture, something that government is taking very seriously right now to promote in the future. Then the third challenge I'd like to point out is all the growth that we have seen from seven kilograms per capita to 23 kilograms per capita, this happened because of the domestic market, because of the growth in domestic economies, not because of international market. If you look at the export and import data, you'll see that large, about $650 million worth of fish exported. Those are mostly shrimp and marine fisheries, not aquaculture. So aquaculture demand is all because of the domestic multiplier effects. It happened because of the income increase within the country. But how long can that continue? I'll cite another example from FAO report in 2005. The recommendation was 
country at that point are consuming per capita 13 kilograms. And recommendation is that, well, if you can get to 18 kilogram per capita, that will be a big achievement. But the country has reached that cross already. It's a 23 kilograms per capita per year now. The question is, what is the path ahead? How can we, how can we continue this path? Because if domestic market is saturated, only way you can do is reaching the international market. And to reach international market, the critical institutions and regulations, they're still missing. They're, they're, they're lag behind. And the country will have to work on that. Okay, the third point, knowledge gathering. We have not looked into it, but we have done reviews of it. This growth in aquaculture has negative externality effects. Habitat degradation, there's a lot of media reports, but you don't find systematic, rigorous assessment of those impacts. I think that's an area that we have to go in, in the future and understand very carefully why that is important and what countries can do to adapt to that and finally can access the international market. So this is the challenge in the picture. I think that's the food safety is, is going to be a critical issue going forward and country will have to address that. These are pictures taken when you are doing field work in Bangladesh, Ujabo. I'd like to end expressing my gratitude to everyone who supported this work, USAID, European Union, PIM, Frank is here, thank you, World Bank, Lorraine is here, thank you. Ministry of Fisheries and Livestock, they made a huge amount of data available to us. And the data analysis and tactical assistance, this is our long-term partner that did the survey work, IPRI's publication review committee, three rounds of review comments. Communication, CPA, Rajul, thank you very much for all the support. And IPRI's South Asia research team towards the end, putting it together. Thank you all, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Shahid, Paul, Nick, and Shaobo. You've given us a wonderful overview of flavor of the key messages of the book. We are privileged to have with us today Lorraine Ronke as to serve as commentator. Lorraine is the practice manager for South Asia in the Agriculture Department of the World Bank. Lorraine, we look forward to your remarks. Okay, well, thank you very much, and thank you to the entire partnership that undertook this work. Um, as introduced, I'm the practice manager for food and agriculture at the World Bank, covering five countries in South Asia, which include Bangladesh. So I really appreciated uh, reading these studies and being invited to comment. Millions of Bangladeshis, women included, importantly, are engaged in aquaculture with important poverty impacts that are being documented here. And that's important to the country and, of course, important to the World Bank's uh, twin goals on reducing poverty and boosting shared prosperity in Bangladesh. But I wanted to comment and maybe ask about were three different aspects that struck me when I read The Blue Revolution. One is on the diversification agenda in Bangladesh currently. One is on private-public roles. And the third is on this research gap on climate and the environment. So starting with the first one, I just want to say that this book is important to other countries who are looking for lessons on how to transform their aquaculture, as noted in the report. But from a policy perspective, it's also important to Bangladesh itself that it learns from its own success here to do the same with the sector and food diversification that it's striving towards. Diversification, while maintaining the gains, the really impressive gains um, that were achieved in rice productivity, diversification, balancing with that, maintaining those gains, that's where the policy dialogue is at in the sector in Bangladesh right now, led by the government. 
Diversification into high value and nutritional crops, non-rice crops, fruits and vegetables, etc. It's needed for faster and more inclusive rural growth and better nutrition. That's the dialogue. So the evidence, therefore, on the success of aquaculture in contributing to inclusive growth and nutrition, that contributes to the evidence basis of that policy dialogue, for which we're all grateful. Um, but what I think is that as we take the, those, that evidence and those lessons, we need to take it in the context that um, you know, how, do, how does the government maintain, when we talk about maintaining momentum in aquaculture, we really do need to look about the momentum and the progress on diversification more generally, right? So for this, it, we would have to add sort of public policy reform that addresses distortions that discourage diversification more generally, not just uh, diversification into aquaculture. You know, removing incentives to overuse certain resources, certain inputs, um, but really more generally to reorient public expenditure towards more efficient, nutritious, and climate resilient production systems and supply chains. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to, to talk about in the context of ways forward and maintaining this momentum, how public expenditure, not, not just on aquaculture, in fact primarily not on aquaculture, but on incentives towards non-diversified uh, crops, how that impacts this further growth pr projections that, that, that the report touches on. So aquaculture growth in the wider context of diversification and incentives. The second thing I wanted to touch on was private and public roles. So the report tells us that aquaculture's transformation has been driven by improved technology, improved infrastructure, and value chain innovation. And indeed, that could be a prescription and is a prescription for subsector transformation anywhere and everywhere. You know, who doesn't like improved technology, improved infrastructure, and value chain innovation? We talk about that all the time, but it actually happened here. That's very important. What is really interesting and what I wanted to comment uh, about was what was the role of government in actually making that happen exactly, those three drivers. In a nutshell, it seems to have let the private sector get on with it, and then it helped them to do so, right? So not just getting in the way, you know, is already a big challenge for many governments. And that's what we, what we see here. So looking at the evidence presented today, but in the book in more detail, we see that much, or we infer, and we can see that much of what the government did right was to let the private sector do it. The report speaks of massive investment from private sector actors all along the chain. Public engagement was in infrastructure goods like roads and telecommunications and electrification, or enabling environment. And from a policy and poverty perspective, that includes enabling poor people to tap into the opportunity, which the government also does, with partners like the bank, but many others as well. So enabling environment, okay? So as the report has identified improved technology, improved infrastructure, and value chain innovations as the drivers, how did that exactly happen? Why did it work here? Enabling environment really stands out here. And that's it, you know, in general, the government's own strategy, the Bangladesh Delta Plan, which for aquaculture has certain objectives, when you see how they propose to go about meeting those objectives, they're talking about things like um, uh, regulatory structures and that aquaculture investments operate within frameworks. You know, it's all about this enabling environment. And I have to tell you from a policy perspective, we talk a lot about enabling environment with our clients. Um, but if we want to show what it looks like, we have a pretty good example here. And I think that more could be made of that, and I think more will be made of that, actually. So again, with uh, gratitude to the, to, the, to the work that was uh, documented here. Um, last, very quickly, because I'm adhering to that clock, 
on the environment. I, I would just completely support the, the, the last comments that were shared with us on putting even more emphasis on the research gap around environmental sustainability, around climate resilience of this food source, um, around environmentally friendly technologies and approaches. And I would suggest that the research looks simultaneously and directly at the three production systems, the three fish production systems. The Delta Plan in Bangladesh, the government's own strategy, is very concerned with sustainable models and outcomes. Partners are very concerned about sustainable models and outcomes. The planet is concerned with sustainable models and outcomes. And the evidence around this is therefore imperative to the policies and frameworks that the government aims to have and to those who are making investments in the sector. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. I know that the uh, uh, four speakers have probably taken, have taken notes of Lorraine's three uh, remarks and I'd like to first open up for discussion with our, uh, with our audience here and then as the speakers have a chance also to reflect back on Lorraine's comments in that uh, response section. So first in the room if you give me an indication of hands we'll come to you uh, with our mics uh, and then we'll come uh, to the online audience second and if you would please tell us your name and institution that'd be uh, great. Tom Timberg and speakers will collect them all so do take notes. It's a marvelous study with lots of insights, which I'm very thankful. Um, and the first, the, and I actually three or f there are three very pointed technical questions, and one thing that you didn't cover, so to, so to speak, which is, um, as you know, there's been a lot of good news from Bangladesh. Um, frankly, there, there's been a lot of good news from Bangladesh over the last several decades, at least certainly two or three. Um, but the interesting thing is that most of the accomplishments have also been paralleled by the districts that immediately adjoin Bangladesh in West Bengal. Not all of West Bengal, but Nadia, Murshidabad, etc. Uh, the social processes, etc. And uh, the question to be raised is, is there any indication that that's true of fisheries as well? The other three questions are pointed. One, you talked about electrification, but with if you're talking about cold storage, you need consistent electrification. And um, the question is, did you look at to what ex extent power failures really undercut the possibility of electricity assisting electrification? Second, you had a figure of 23 million employees. Is that primary occupation, full-time? How, how much are they working at thing? Well, why didn't you pass the mic next to Agnes Quisenbeng? Hello, good morning. My name is Agnes Kesumbing and I am from IFPRI. So I was very delighted to attend this um, seminar because I started my career at IFPRI doing an aquaculture survey with Howdy and with Akhtarabai. And one of the things that we were looking at was at the inter-household impacts of the new fish technologies, including aquaculture. So I was quite interested and a little bit concerned that the indicator for gender equality or gender disaggregation was male-headed versus female-headed households because these don't really tell you about the distribution of um, consumption, nutrition, resources within the household. Why is this important? It's important because we have documented that um, women tend to have lower allocations of protein sources within the household, including fish. And so if you were concerned about low domestic demand for fish, um, increasing women's consumption of fish would possibly help that to some extent, 
But also, let's not forget that there have been many um, women's groups-led efforts in Bangladesh which have looked at group-based fish ponds, which are tiny compared to the large fish ponds that are, that are you know, mushrooming, sprouting in Bangladesh. Um, when I went back also after like 10 years, I was surprised to see the scale of fish pond expansion. So is there going to be room for this smallholder small aquaculture, or is this all going to be driven out by the expansion of commercial aquaculture? Thank you. Very important questions. Frank, next. Hi, um, I'm Frank Place, the director of the Policies, Institutions, and Markets Program. Uh, yeah, it was a great, uh, great presentation. I have to apologize. I haven't read the book yet, but I will. Um, uh, so my one, I have two, two points. One is just to reinforce uh, Lorraine's second comment about the private-public role. So when I, was, when I was listening to the key drivers on infrastructure and income growth and then Shahid mentioned comparative advantage of we have there's people and water. I also thought, well, that should also benefit vegetables and fruits, you know, both of the, all those factors. So again, I just wanted to follow up with, with just asking, you know, is, was there any other specific efforts on why the aquaculture took off and apparently perhaps not as much on vegetables and fruits? Um, you mentioned, for example, the, this clustering. I don't know if the government was actively involved in promoting clustering or whether it happened organically, but maybe you could mention that. Um, then my, my other question is, uh, what's, it, did you, were you able to look at other innovations along the value chain? So we, we talked a lot about technologies at the production level, but how is the, the, the value chain transforming? Also, is there more value adding? Is there other you know, um, improvements that uh, households are pay, paying for? And what's kind of the share of the, the consumer price that's going to the farmers? How is that evolving over time? Frank, thank you. I know there were other hands in the room. I come back to them in the second round, along with any online at that time. But uh, speakers, may I come back to you? And at this moment, uh, as we do that, if you also want to reflect on Lorraine's comments. Mm -hmm. And I'll begin with you, Shahid. And then now go to Shabo, Nick, and Paul. So Lorraine's point about private-public partnership, <clears throat> good thing Bangladesh government did in case of aquaculture, didn't do anything. It didn't intervene. So private sector could thrive by itself and respond to the incentive that was available there. Uh, all the regulations that are coming up, that Lorraine, you mentioned the Delta plan, that will put more restriction in many ways on the private sector. Uh, but in terms of the um, future direction, that has to come in. I think it will, it will come in through the Ministry of Fisheries. There is a lot of capacity building work going on. Hopefully they will, they will take on it. Uh, second point was about whether West Bengal had something to do with the growth. Actually, growth happened mostly in Maiman Singh district and the part of the Cox's Bazar, which is in the south, they're farther away. These are in the middle and Kumila district. So there are some districts that are closer, but it's happening closer to mega cities, closer to Dhaka. I'll leave a driver's question to Jabo. You want to respond to that question? I agree with your comment on the role of government. We didn't hear, yeah, we didn't hear much discussion on the role of government when we did the field work. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, also, I want to add one thing on Lauren's comment on the environment. I think environment probably will become more serious down the road. So the photo we took, you see that there are a lot of dead fish. But right now, people are poor. They don't care much about the fish quality. Just eat it. Mm -hmm. uh, but when people get rich, they will care, concern more about the fish quality and f uh, fish safety. So if Bangladesh want to export fresh water fish, mm -hmm. the quality will become a very important issue. Mm -hmm. The disease issue will be definitely will come to the agenda. So and when 
deal with dealing with externality, the role of government will become greater than before. So that in the future, the government can play a, a more important role. Uh, also, I think the first this uh, audience asked the question of the power failure. That's a very good question. When we went to the field the first time, we had uh, experienced power outage all the time. But when we visit Bangladesh this time, last year, yeah. we found electricity access and the robustness of the, the electricity has have, have improved dramatically. The reason is due to our collaborator, Dr. Kekos. He was a, uh, a sector of energy. He told us a fascinating story how he helped solve the problem of electricity shortage, basically through FDIs, through uh, by inviting foreign companies to invest in different types of power plants, coal power plants, nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. He had different strategies. For short term, use gas-powered uh, power plants. This, uh, the, the, uh, the capacity is smaller, but solve the short term goal. At the nuclear middle term, and the co-power uh, co plant long term. And then they build partnership, joint ventures. So the government invests very little, but mainly by reform, improve the regulation, relax the regulations. So he told us the fascinating stories. Right now, and recently, even they have the access of the uh, yeah, access capacity of the electricity. Yeah. Only they solved the problem in 10 years. He was. You should maybe later on write a story about the, the power sector reform. Mm. Mm. Nick would be next. Nick, you have a microphone. Yes. Agnes is about uh, male and female headed as a pretty crude proxy for uh, the gender impact. Um, I, yes, uh, that would be, it would be really nice to be able to look at the intra-household uh, issues um, and uh, gender dyna dynamics. Um, unfortunately, we were working with uh, a data set. We wanted a data set that was towards the beginning of the aquaculture revolution, so we were working with the secondary data. This was the Household Income and Expenditure Survey, and that does not have the, the breakdown that we would have needed to do that analysis. But I certainly agree that that would be an important and interesting line of, of research. Um, whether small producers will survive, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think. You know, we haven't really made use of the um, the fact that we have the HIES over uh, at least 20-year period, so that it would be possible to look at the evolution of the the size of uh, aquaculture farms. Um, the last question was Frank's about uh, the share of the income earned by farmers. Um, I don't have a, a great answer for that, but I know we were looking at uh, the percentage change in price between 2000 and 2010, this period of, of rapid uh, growth in the sector. And uh, we found that the consumer price, sort of a weighted average of different species, but the consumer price declined by 45% and the farm price uh, declined by 36%, which would suggest that not only were uh, the farms becoming more productive, but the market channel itself was becoming more productive, so that you had um, larger gains for consumers than than the proportional reduction in price for for farmers. So it sort of addresses your your question to some degree. Thank you very much. Um, huh? uh, who wants to go next? Uh, Lorraine. Lorraine. Okay. Thank you very much. 
Um, no, I mean, as you can see, this discussion about what the public role versus the private role in this success story is very interesting from different angles. That's what I'm hearing from, from the authors, but also some of the comments that, that came from the crowd. I mean, you're quite right, we agreed. It's that they sort of got out of the way of this activity. Um, but that doesn't mean anything goes either. You know, they were, it's not just a passive thing. They were actively investing in infrastructure, other parallel processes that were unrelated to aquaculture, and then very important to, to the point that was made about smallholder inclusion, also pretty active in, in seeing how smallholders could be linked in. But as for the rest, you're quite right to sort of step out of the way and, and let the private sector kind of, and there was also a question on, on fruit and vegetable diversification. I think that's sort of what I was heading towards in some of these points about repurposing public expenditure, having a look at where the incentives lie while still maintaining gains in rice, et cetera. I think you're exactly right, Frank, that there are other constraints that if we look at the aquaculture success in that wider context of what's holding back diversification, say, in other crops, in, in non-rice crops, um, as it did for agriculture, that that would, aquaculture, that that would be, um, I think, a very interesting and productive exercise. Thank you very much. Let me go to the second round of questions and comments. Um, I believe we have uh, online questions. I'd like to go to those first and ask my colleague Lucy to read them out to us. Speakers, please take notes. Okay, sure. Uh, so we have a couple questions from Paul Atsu from Footprints Bridge International, Ghana. How can we diversify and involve the rural youth and women in the revolution of the blue economy? And can we localize this blue economy? And the second one is, what is the business side of the SDGs that youth can take into account? Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, we note that, and I'll come back into the room because I'd seen hands up here. Uh, the gentleman, and then Katrina, and then, yeah. Please go ahead and tell us your name. I'm Mark Mitchell. I'm with Venture 37, the International Development Division of Land O'Lakes. I'd like to follow up on the diversification. W one of the things I constantly saw in one of the slides was the large number of feed mills, the large number of feed or quantities of feed that has to go into all these ponds. And what I'm looking at is there's probably not enough feed mills who also can have the capacity and access to raw materials to manufacture feeds for other livestock, i.e. the dairy industry, the poultry industry. And so that may be one of the, 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 the control points for our diversification. And next I'd like to make a comment that from what I'm hearing about the level of the market and all here, it's now time to look at the next stage of that market development. And one of the programs that I interact with frequently is under the USDA, <clears throat> the Food for Progress, where specifically we're asked to come in and look at the food safety issues and how to get those products ready to go into the international market. So I'd encourage you to have that conversation with USDA. Um, thank you. Very, uh, very interesting to me. And um, I kind of wanted to piggyback off of one of Agnes's questions, um, sorry, I'm Katrina Kosick. I'm a senior research fellow uh, at IFPRI in our development strategy and governance division. And I guess my question is, you've talked about the benefits of government sort of keeping hands off and, and letting the market work. And I'm kind of wondering how, where gender equality fits in this. And is there a role for government or for policy or for the private sector perhaps to better integrate women into this value chain to ensure that the consumption gains of this blue revolution are 
equally shared by women and by men. Uh, we know that women often have um, larger uh, influence over what children are eating and what investments are made in children as well. So for children's dietary quality, it may be especially important that women are making decisions about consumption um, and uh, getting access to that. So I'm kind of wondering, what is the role potentially of policy, of private sector in, in making sure that these, these gains are fairly shared within the household? Thank you very much, Katrina. And then the mic behind you. Um, I'm Randall Brummett. I'm from the World Bank. I'm running a $260 million aquaculture project right now <laughs> in Bangladesh. Um, and it's, you know, while um, I accept that the role of, of you know, the, the formal government machinery um, was not uh, particularly effective in driving a lot of this uh, blue revolution, there, ha there were massive injections of technical assistance on the part of the Danish, USAID, uh, the World Bank. Um, over the years, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars were invested mostly in technical assistance in supporting the creation of the Bangladesh Agricultural University, the big aquaculture division there, BFRI. Um, and, the, and I would argue that a, a part of the, the success was driven by this technical assistance, and the technical assistance was largely focused at species diversification and adaptation to um, existing uh, environmental resources that could be used for, uh, used for aquaculture. So it partly, my, my point part, partly is addressing this question about diversification of crops, because aquaculture isn't just one thing. It's like agriculture. It's got hundreds of species in it. And this, the history of the different species in Bangladesh is different and is driven by different things. Disease, for example, is one of the things that's creating this interest in mariculture now in the coastal zone. Because the shrimp, which is worth about five times the price in the market, you can't get it, you know, it won't grow past 40 days because it's getting diseases and dying off. So they're moving to a lower value. Anyway, point being that the, the diversification strategy was fueled by massive uh, foreign aid injections, and that that, I think, might be uh, a contributing factor to the development of this sector. Thank you. Let me come back to our speakers. There were a number of key questions, inclusion of youth, inclusion of gender, integration, next steps in the process, uh, and the role of technical assistance, but all centering around also the role of policy and private sector and so forth. Shall we go in reverse order this time? Lorraine, would you like to start responding? Yeah. So, you know, I think I'm very... So I'm very... Okay. Um, yeah, some very interesting comments to continue on this inclusion issue, which I think I agree. I think it's very important. Um, the two things that coexist, and they can, is that what Bangladesh appears to have done right is to get out of the way of a very entrepreneurial, very vibrant private sector to realize these gains. Does not mean do nothing, right? So that was one of my earlier comments. Yes, they've invested in enabling environment, and very importantly, enabling means enabling the poor or people that may otherwise be excluded, including women, to connect. So some of this technical assistance that my, my um, colleague was speaking of that are you know, across the bank, but other partners, 
um, making sure that that reaches very small holders, very, that, that was an active investment, right? We lent to the government, the government undertakes activities, that was an active public investment. So it's not so much about doing nothing when we say getting out of the way and letting the private sector, but it's that very tricky balance, which Bangladesh appears to you know, have one of the better examples globally, let's put it that way, of letting the private sector do its thing, but it's not, let's say, you know, anything happen, et cetera. So I think these are good points that people are returning to. Yeah, um, I probably know less about Bangladesh than most of the people up here, um, uh, and uh, so I don't really have any comments on, on what's been said, but um, very interesting discussion anyway. Thank you very much, Nick. Did you want to comment, Paul? Just, just an observation on this uh, diversification question. That's been discussed for three or four decades about how can one promote diversification and such. And one thing that's uh, on, for these for the aquaculture is there's this very high income elasticity of demand for for fish, and so uh, when these supply constraints have been released to a great extent from the successes on the ponds and the productivity side, there's plenty of demand. And I, I, it's not at all clear that you would see anything like that, unfortunately, for, for vegetables or so forth. There, there's a positive income elasticity, but there are a lot of other uh, uh, sharp constraints on the demand and marketing for these other products. First, on the feed meal, uh, I do believe feed meal has a very large scale of production. We visit some of the feed mills, mm -hmm. like invest by Thailand uh, companies or Chinese companies, New Hope, CP, etc. They can easily set up very large feed mills to meet the de domestic demand. Uh, so we also found that they produce a lot of poultry feed. Mm -hmm. The poultry farm have become very popular in Bangladesh. It was sponsored initially by USAID. So that's the first one. On the gender issue, I don't see there's any, poor, uh, agriculture sector probably more like gender neutral. I don't, haven't seen any policies to promote gender equity. But in the government sector, this very, it's very female intensive. There are more than four million workers in the government sector. Most of them are female workers from very poor families. They migrate to cities, work in the garment factories. Look at the, the writing wages in our paper, where development paper we argued, writing wages is largely driven by the expansion of the garment uh, sector. And you can even look at the female income. The female wages have been increasing faster than male wages. So when female, young female workers get more uh, salaries, they send more money back home, they will be good for their nutrition status back in their home. It's good for the whole family's uh, nutrition uh, improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, also on the technical assistance, uh, when we were in the field, we talked to like even the uh, stores selling drugs and medicines. Most of them graduate from local universities. Probably they, they benefit, in, indirect benefit from the assistance. They get better trained, the veterans, mm -hmm. all this. So I'll come back to the big question that is floating around is diversification. <clears throat> we are not touching the key point. That point is the huge amount of fertilizer subsidy. 
is subsidized to the tune of some year it was more than a billion dollars. If you normalize it by state, it's more than India. And in Bangladesh, eliminated fertilizer subsidies altogether from late 90s to about 2007. And consumption continued to increase, held it in break loose. But then there was a global food price crisis. New government came back with a big amount of subsidy. When you have that kind of subsidies, free money, it's difficult to diversify. Then rice production becomes a more competitive uh, endeavor to be engaged in. So that is one issue. About the youth employment, our data actually, survey has some data, we can look into it. If I recall correctly, average age of these entrepreneur, all of them are young. These are not older people. Older people are still cultivating rice, not, not other crop. In terms of the gender, I think we have some data on that. Gender engagement in aquaculture is not that great, if I recall those numbers. Uh, the way we're looking at is the female headed Headed meaning is just renting out the pond. That's how they are making the money, not actually engaging in production. And about the smallholder engagement in this, the f fish farmers that we are talking about, they're not large. We can look at the size of it, very small pond. It's about a fraction of an acre. So previously they were doing rice in that, say, one-fourth of an acre of land. Production was tiny, one-fourth of a ton. Now they have one-fourth of an acre, but close to 15 tons of fish, which is multiplied by 1,000, that's $15,000 revenue. That is clearly a winner. And that is happening a lot. We can, our survey data, survey has a lot of information to look into it. But in general, my sense is that there's a, many of these ponds are, are, ponds are not big, large commercial farmers, except the shrimp culture, which is dominated by the large uh, enterprises. Now coming back to the investment, Yes, Danida's investment in Singh area is acknowledged by the Ministry of Fisheries and other departments. Uh, USAID, we don't know, maybe it was done so long time ago that when we did a survey, people forgot. But investments were important to trigger this in the 90s and early 2000. Uh, that is very well acknowledged. Another point, last one I would like to make is the government's role in youth employment. We did this interview in Jashore. They had a government youth employment program. And one of the things they did, they teach all these young youngsters how to cultivate fish to the aquaculture. So in that sense, that played a role, but we couldn't quantify it from our research. But there is definitely that role was there. About your supply chain of the feed, country did not have a big feed mill until 1999. The first one was the standard feed that came in. They created six zones. Each zone has 600 dealers. That's a huge employment creation. Now there are many of that sort. So private sector is coming up. I again emphasize what Lorraine said. Government intervention is a bad thing, but no government is not a good thing either. Government has to be there to maintain it, to do the food quality, safety, and all of that. Even the feed contamination is becoming an issue, and that regulation is needed. So no government probably is not an option at this point. They have to step in, do right kind of regulations. Thank you very much. We have time to do one more round and I understand we have some online questions. Let's go with them and then I'll come back into the room for any final questions, comments, reflections. Uh, Lucy, online. Uh, so we have two here um, from Sung Wung Jung from Kyoto University, Japan. What should the role of big corporations be for the future sustainable development of aquaculture, not only in Bangladesh, but also 
in the global context, considering there is a large population of small fishery households. And the second one is Haji Msanji from Sokroin University of Agriculture, Tanzania. One of the key challenges in the aquaculture sector in Tanzania is unsustainable fisheries. How is this a problem in Bangladesh, and what do you think should be done to address the problem? Thank you very much. Great comments from our colleagues in Japan and Tanzania. Let me come back into the room. Any further questions, comments, reflections, uh, including in, in response to anything you have heard? Uh, my colleague Indira. And then I will have a comment myself. Um, I have a question, like, uh, because the agricultural land is converted into aquaculture. And uh, per my understanding, once you've done the aquaculture, and then it is not useful for the agricultural land. So what happens? And also, um, Shahid, you mentioned there is a increased production uh, in the monetary benefits. And I also understand from India, like in my family itself, we got benefit by monetary fund, and the next year we have full loss. Thank you very much, Indira. If I, if I may ask a question looking forward, and we've been talking a lot about the role of policy or role of government, and looking forward and picking up on our colleagues' questions in terms of the next steps uh, in the development of the aquaculture sector going forward, um, what would you see as the big policy questions or challenges or opportunities for the government, for all of you, for how, where would the next investments be for sustainable growth of the aquaculture sector that is more inclusive, continues to yield the benefits in terms of poverty reduction, food security, nutrition? Where would you want to see investments take place by the government policy investments? Um, let me begin again in reverse order so that Shahid will have the final comment. Um, and let me be just more bold and go with going in this order. Paul, would you like to make any reflections? Well, it, coming to your, your question, Rajul, uh, it, it, it seems to me that it's very important to make sure that the uh, infrastructure at the uh, village level is, is working. And these, these issues about food safety uh, uh, are very much tied into uh, what's happening to the water quality uh, in those ponds, and then also the availability of the electricity, the reliability there to make sure that you've got a cold chain that, that's, that actually always works. On the role of a big company, uh, probably for feed mills, the big companies can play an important role. For a fish farm, I don't know, because uh, the problem doesn't is very high. There are many smallholder farmers. It's very hard for big companies suddenly replace so many smallholder farmers. From Tanzania, I know later about it. Uh, I'm not sure whether the infrastructure is good enough or whether there's a uh, demand for enough demand. So it's hard to answer this question. Uh, looking forward, I have two points. Once the government should help increase the yield of the fish production, probably by investing more in R&D, uh, have, have more varieties. Uh, as Sahid pointed out, uh, the, the yield in uh, Bangladesh is much lower than in Vietnam. There's still a lot of room for improvement, this one. Secondly, on, food, on safety, 
So I said earlier, the safety will become very, very important issue. It involves huge externality. It's very hard for individual farmers to solve the problem. So the government should come into a play. I think the colleagues have, have made sort of the, the really important and major points. Um, I guess what I would say is that the, the larger policy picture here is around repurposing public expenditure and to some extent policies towards nutritive high value crops um, and, and food sources, sorry, and doing so with a clear eye to environmental sustainability. So I do appreciate the further comment from the Tanzania um, participant on you know, knowing much more about the absolute and the relative impacts and mitigation measures around the environment. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, on the question about large corporations, I guess I just wanted to um, build on what Jabo was saying that I think for the input delivery that there's, uh, there are large economies of scale in producing feed and producing um, the hatchlings and so on, so that it's likely and beneficial for large corporations to be involved in that. Um, fortunately for production, the economies of scale just aren't there. It makes a lot more sense. It can be produced, fish can be produced a lot uh, at a lower cost with uh, farm level production, whether that's small scale or medium scale farm, I guess that's, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see as, as things evolve over time. Um, in terms of the question from Tanzania on unsustainable fisheries, I'm guessing that he might be talking about marine or river fisheries. And uh, that's one of the big advantages, maybe one of the reasons that aquaculture is growing so rapidly compared to marine fisheries is that you don't have the problem, you have better incentives. Farmers have an incentive to maintain their stock, to protect their resources. In a marine fisheries, you have tragedy of the commons. You have, you know, everybody has an incentive to pull out as much as possible. So th there, there's a, a real necessary role for the government in maintaining the stocks and, and uh, avoiding overfishing. Um, I guess, um, uh, yeah, just just uh, follow up on what Paul is saying. I think that you know, the one thing that, that the Bangladesh government needs to be credited for is providing the infrastructure, providing the roads, uh, not just the main roads, but rural roads, uh, and more reliable electricity, um, which have really helped um, the expansion of agriculture, but also the growth of the economy in general. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's important to point out uh, what Ryan was saying about the human capacity development, that uh, without that um, development of the universities and, and researchers and so on, that the capital, human capital for the growth of the sector might have, um, might not have been there, it might have impeded its, its growth. Um, so I guess just to sum up, I would say, yeah, I think this is a real success story in a lot of ways, very inclusive growth, growth uh, dramatic, um, uh, improvements both in terms of poverty reduction and income growth, but presumably also in terms of protein intake that, that on the nutrition side that this has been a positive thing. Having said that, I think there are serious environmental issues that, uh, that the government will need to address and food safety will become an Im increasingly important issue. So I'd like to make three points. 
<clears throat> one is we, we think the aquaculture sector grow faster than the institution could catch up. I made that point during the concluding remarks. So next investment should be building the institution in the country. Uh, Department of Fisheries, they're good people, but they are not very efficient institution. There's a lot of room to improvement. Even the data quality, investment in data is very limited. If you want to go there, you have data, time series data, that are not properly organized. And there are a lot of peak holes. Given the structure the country has, I think that, that is a serious areas of improvement. And the, the analytical capacity in the Department of Fisheries is also another important area that we have to go into. I totally agree on the value chain development in both of both cases. I think that's the future. Even the domestic consumers are going to demand safe food going forward. So that investment, there is no brainer. The investment has to be there. And the third point would be how to repurpose the, take Lorraine's point, take the investment they are making that are distortionary, take that money, can use it so that the whole system, aquaculture value chain, can be more inclusive and prosperous. Thank you very much. Before I give the speakers the final 30-second tweetable message, uh, let me make two announcements. One, the book is freely available on the IFPRI website. You can download it. You can download the chapters that excite you the most. This uh, presentation will also be up for those of you who want to examine those columns or those regressions or, in fact, review it. Everything will be up on our website. Second announcement, there's very exciting, and a lot of interest in Bangladesh. Uh, later tomorrow night and early on Thursday morning, we'll be releasing the second of our new podcast series. Um, the second podcast focuses on Bangladesh and scaling up nutrition for poor people and features a, a conversation with our colleague Akta Ahmed, the head of our uh, policy program in Bangladesh. So stay tuned for that. With that, let me give each of our speakers any final message they want to sear in your brain uh, before we walk away from here, and I'll walk backwards in reverse order. Lorraine, uh, why don't you go ahead, and with Shahid, we'll have the final word. You want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, it really resonated with me when you uh, started, actually, the publication starts with this people and water, that these are huge assets that Bangladesh has. I think that when I first started working in Bangladesh, you're immediately struck by the entrepreneurship and the dynamism of the people, from the smallest micro-entrepreneur, smallholder. Um, so enabling environment is a really important lesson to examine in this experience, and, and that's an active agenda, especially when it involves growing in the poor. That's sort of my final thought. There, there appears to be a, a very bright future for aquaculture in Bangladesh. There's a potential for a lot of increase in domestic demand. There is a big gap between productivity in Bangladesh and other countries, so there's a big opportunity to increase supply. Uh, but going forward, uh, it's very important to pay a lot of attention to food safety. I sort of incorporated my final comments into the last one, so I, I don't have any additional comments. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe I just summarize my major points. Four transformations, extensive growth, intensive growth, commercialization, clustering. There's the four features of uh, transformation of the agriculture sector. There are two drivers, uh, better infrastructure, rising wages.
Thank you. All or me? Okay. Uh, I'd like to make an, uh, again appeal that you can download it. Book is free. Take it uh, <laughs> and go through all the equations there is. Uh, there, I don't think there will be cassava there. There will be fish. And one point I'd like to emphasize one more time is that country has to invest. The World Bank, the project has to invest in analytical capacity of the Ministry of Fisheries and Department of Fisheries. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking all our speakers and discussants. And thank you very much. Thank you to those online.